Welcome to Better Business Outcomes, where we discuss how good communication can transform and grow organizations with a series of global leaders who set the standard for what great looks like. I'm Sarah Waddington from Wadzinc, and I've been working in PR for more than 20 years. In this podcast, you'll hear from leaders and senior communicators about their leadership journey and how they create social impact. You'll also understand the areas you should be focusing on to build personal and organizational resilience, find out how public relations can unlock value for your business, and you'll enjoy a great listen along the way. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Tukumbo Ajasa Olawa, who is the CEO of national social mobility charity, Career Ready. Welcome to the show, Tukumbo. Thanks, Sarah. Pleasure to be here. Better business outcomes, as you know, is all about good leadership. And let's start with the big question, what for you makes a good leader? Who do you look up to? Hmm. Uh, what makes a good leader? I think a good leader is someone that can inspire people, trust people, and be vulnerable around their team. So those three qualities for me is, is what I kind of look for in, in great leadership. And in regards to individuals that have inspired my personal journey, I had the pleasure of, of meeting her once, is uh, Dame Anita Roddick oh, from wow. Body Shop. Big name. Yeah, I remember, I, it was funny, I reached out to her when I was setting up my first social enterprise probably about 20 years ago now. Um, and she was gracious enough to give me some time. And we were just talking about leadership and inspirations and social purpose and how that intertwines with business etc and i just loved her philosophy and it was all built around passion purpose and making positive change so she very much stood out to me as, as someone who had a leadership style that i I've, I've taken a lot from that's quite a name drop uh, and i love also what you said about um, good leaders having vulnerability and i think that's one of the things that anita also embodied you know she's one of those names that you know everybody knew who she was and um you know still a big miss in terms of um you know her leadership style but lots of people look up to her i um mentioned career ready in in the intro and you connect young people with workplace support and opportunities tell us about your overarching mission and what it means in practice yeah, so basically what Career Ready is about is uh, the premise that talent doesn't have a particular postcode. So that's our hypothesis and we, we yeah. aim to prove that, you know, and, and how we prove that is by working in areas across the UK that has highest level of deprivation, working with young people that are facing multiple social economic barriers, but providing them with that bridge, you know, and that bridge is really focused on their potential. So. We provide a bridge that enables them to make better informed decisions when it comes to their career choices, bridges that enable them to connect with professionals where they can increase their social capital and ultimately tap into their potential and, and, um, and live a lifestyle uh, and life choices that they never thought someone like them from their background could do. And, and how that practically works is working with young people aged 15, 16 uh, upwards and provide them with a program that includes a paid internship, uh, access to a mentor, and multiple masterclasses that are delivered by volunteers from our employer partners. So that, in a nutshell, is, is what we do at Career Ready. 
Fantastic and so important. I mean, you'll have seen yourself recently, the Social Mobility Foundation published research which showed that um, people with jobs from working class backgrounds compared to their peers are earning around £7,000 less than, than, their, than their colleagues. And so, you know, apart from widening access to starting with placements and then careers, obviously there's ongoing work to do. So it's fantastic that uh, you're in this space and, and starting and starting as early as possible. And we'll come back to that actually later. Um, you're a leading voice on social mobility in part because of your own lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind sharing what your background was like and how it's contributed to the work you do today? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in the East End of London. Um, and uh, I, I literally have the profile of, of a young person that would fit onto the Career Ready program. So um, I grew up in a single parent family, council housing narrative, went to one of the worst performing schools in, in the capital. So yeah, the odds, the odds of achievement <laughs> were, were quite slim, um, you know, but I was very fortunate and blessed to have a mother and older siblings that were able to inspire me that my future could be a beyond what I could practically see in my day-to-day reality. So growing up on free school meals, the narrative was tough, you know, uh, and, and that, that would have an impact on what I thought was possible. My older siblings uh, were the first in our family to go to university. They inspired me to go to university and study journalism, but it wasn't easy. Um, you know, it wasn't an easy experience, uh, just from the premise of, of fitting in. Uh, yeah, you know, no shared and, experience. Yeah, exactly. So it was very much a kind of tough, groundbreaking experience because my mum came to the UK in the 60s. So I'm first generation British Nigerian. uh, And and that came with its own challenges as well. So being brought up in a home that had a lot of Nigerian culture, but simultaneously very much being uh, a British East Ender, you know, it was quite a Uh, quite a challenging identity journey that I went on. So all of that has inspired me to do the work that that I've been doing. And I've had young people and youth empowerment as like a golden thread throughout my career for, I'd say, at least over 20 years. Sounds like I have a hugely supportive uh, family around you. They must be incredibly proud of where you are today. That's really interesting. And um, I certainly have very different experiences to you, but can very much relate to a difficult time at university for having none of those shared experiences, also coming from a single parent background. And it's interesting how it forms you as a person and as a leader and really does make a difference to what you choose to do as a career. I certainly that's that's what I found and, and clearly that's the case with you. Um, let's talk about industries and this issue within industries i can speak for the pr industry i think it's fair to say which is um the one i'm closest to there's still not a pipeline of diverse talent particularly from school leaver age upwards now my husband and i've created um, a community interest company called socially mobile but that um supports people with two years experience onwards so that's kind of school leaver um persona still hasn't been dealt with. What are the big structural issues would you say that are holding businesses from all sectors back? I, I think one of the, the structural issues is, well, it's twofold. One is there's a lot of great work that's taking place in silos. And that siloed approach is really frustrating because you've got some pioneering leaders who have limited resources 
don't have the connectivity to be parachuted into a chief exec's office and say, hey, your, your creative agency or your PA agency should be working with us. So there, there is a disconnect. There, there are fantastic pockets of work taking place across the UK, but it's not aligned. So sometimes you're finding businesses looking for solutions, but they don't know where to look. So I think it's about that connectivity. We need almost that awareness piece of where is the examples of best practice and how can we connect them together? And it's not, it's not a crabs in a barrel mentality where there's only space for one entity. It's really understanding the nuance within the, those profiles of, of the individuals that they're working with and realizing how they can complement each other. So that's one side of things. It's, it's, um, it's the awareness piece. It's a really great point. That, that silo point is a really good, well-made one, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the second point is, it's really about, uh, there's a difference between talking about the narrative and, and investing in the narrative. And I think I'll use two sporting kind of anecdotes that really kind of reinforce the difference, right? So it's the, the World Cup has just started, the Men's uh, Football World Cup has just started. And, and in 1990 and 1994, France are the current World Cup holders, right? They, they won it in, in 2018. Remember it well. In 1990 and 1994, they, they, yeah, they, they didn't qualify, right? They didn't qualify. But then in, in 1998, they were hosting the World Cup and they won it. And that was because after the experience of 1990 and 1994, they set themselves some drastic challenges of KPIs of how they're going to change their system. And they invested in that change. And the long-term response to that was at the next World Cup, which was four years later, they won it. You know, so it was clear about having a strategy, being brave, being bold, thinking differently. And then the reward is you, you become the best team in the world. And, and it's not just football. When you look at British Olympic team, same kind of thing. In, in 1996, Atlanta 1996 Olympics, Great Britain won only one gold medal, right? It was pathetic. And, and they knew they needed to change that. So 16 years later, when we hosted London 2012, we actually won 29 gold medals. And that's the most gold medals GB has, has won in over 100 years. And again, it was about system change. It was like, this level of performance is not good enough. This changed the culture, set some demanding and ambitious targets and reap the rewards of that. So if industries and businesses want to do the same thing, they need to invest. It's, it's not enough just identifying the challenges and talking about it. We need to see investment. 100%. And I think there's so many great examples from the sporting world. I'm very much hoping that for the next series, I'll be able to speak to someone from the All Blacks. I find them absolutely fascinating, not just for their ongoing success uh, and their their leadership lessons. But, you know, if you look at them, they're one of the most diverse teams in the world, if not the most diverse uh, rugby team. And um, I think in terms of a symbol of national pride, they're, they're very much that. And um, I'm, I'm keen to delve into that. But again, you know, they, they, they significantly invest in those things as you just said and, and you can see the payoff let's go on to your time as a cabinet officer appointed social enterprise ambassador i think that was between 2007 and 10 and you were advising downing street on diversity youth development and um social entrepreneurship please be honest what kind of influence did you actually have was the political leadership of the time responsive oh 
Well, it was a really challenging time. It was during a, uh, uh, um, a recession, so it wasn't, wasn't the best time. Of course, time of course, the 2009 recession. I've forgotten about that. wasn't the best time to, to influence. But I mean, yeah, I, I would say the influence was, there was a team of us. So social enterprise was in its infancy. And I think where we were able to influence in regards to policy around that was around investment in that and being able to uh, change the culture in regards to what serious investment and access to finance looked like for social enterprise as, a, as an emerging kind of uh, governance structure. So years later, when I look at it now, you've got organizations that provide social bonds and you know, significant investment in that space. That's a, that's a great legacy. But one of the more frustrating areas was youth development and, and, and youth kind of empowerment around employment. So we were influencing things like the Future Jobs Fund, which was a short-term scheme about helping young people that were outside of the job market. But, you know, fast forward, we had something similar this summer that just finished, which was the Kickstarter scheme. And the problem with those things is they just happen, again, in silo. They're not connected to the apprenticeship offer. Um, so they were very short-term kind of responses to the challenge. And I think the, the frustration that we had is there wasn't the long-term thinking in regards to those responses. This comes up time and again, the short-termism of the thinking and the policy making, when actually this needs a very coherent long-term response. But great to have had the access and no doubt to, to still be able to, to get access if needed. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was an interesting time because, uh, you know, the kind of work that we do is usually the first things that get ripped out of a budget yeah, um, sure. during, during a recession. So in that respect, I, I suppose we may have had some impact on, on not that not being completely ripped out of of uh, central government budgets for, for work that was trying to make that level of social impact. For sure. Um, I'm going to combine a couple of questions here. Um, what can young talent bring to an organisation? Because I think that's a really important question. And secondly, on the back of that, what we do know, um, if there's research on this, but we've certainly seen this through the community interest company, Socially Mobile, that those without power won't take it. It's just not within their gift um, for a multitude of reasons. So what can young talent bring to an organisation, but what can leaders also do to, to hand power over, as it were? Yeah, I think um, what, what this generation Z can bring to employers is uh, a totally different perspective. I mean, they are probably the most socially conscious generation we've had in, in a very long time, you know. Yeah, it's wonderful. When I'm interviewing young candidates, they're asking me about my DNI policy and, and, and what does that look like in reality, you know, and that, that is something that is very... There's challenging questions. They're good, yeah, aren't they? But it's new. It's, it's new, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. It's new. It's fresh. They've got a fresh perspective. And also, I think you've got to earn their trust and earn their loyalty a lot more. The days of, of an employer staying in an organization for 20 years are very rare. Right. So we're, we're dealing with quite a, a transient um, generation. So they, they move here, there and everywhere. And they're doing a number of things simultaneously. So they may be working for you as an employee, but it's likely that they've got one or two things going on on the side as well. So um, in that respect, I think we have to appreciate the fact that give them the space to be themselves rather than trying to fit 
an archaic culture that might not be fit for now and might not be fit for tomorrow. And that work doesn't have to be the be all and end all. I think there's still this thing, this notion, there's all these discussions about the nine to five and hybrid working or home working or office work. And it all comes down to the same thing in terms of it's that, that work is the dominant factor in your life. And actually for these people, it's not necessarily the case. It's important to them. They want the reward. They have, there's a commercial imperative to it. You know, all, all those things, you're not, you know, they, they, they need to earn as much as we do, but actually they recognize, and especially bearing in mind the economic environment they're in, that they rightly want something more to life that is not just about that transaction of going into an organization, even if you share the, the values, right? Absolutely. It's, it's about fulfillment. And that fulfillment doesn't necessarily reflect their compensation package. You know, since COVID, I've had, including within my own team, I've known a number of young adults that have said, I'm off. (laughs) Whether that's to go traveling with their partner or whether to just try something different. You know, they are very brave. They're a lot braver than, than previous generations. So I think for employers... It's understanding that um, if you're willing to kind of evolve your culture and give them the freedom to be themselves, they can bring a real dynamism to the workplace and to the business and and the whole perspective of of how you move forward. And then in regards to your second question, in regards to what leaders can do, I think a big thing that leaders can do is is trust their team, right? And they need to be providing more opportunities for, for young talent to feel empowered to feel like they're recognized and and feel they're trusted. Because the reality is that's what's gonna be keeping people engaged. It's the challenge, it's the constant opportunity to develop and grow as professionals, right? So I think that's something that us as leaders should be actively looking for. Whether that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to reflect a job title change, but it's just that notion of understanding who that individual is learning about their particular drivers. It's workplace design in many respects, isn't it? It's in terms of shaking up how you think about you do business with your talent and and evolving and growing alongside the people that are working with you at that that time. And it does take a fundamental mind shift. It's, you know, and it takes investment. And I think probably there is an element of fear attached to that for for, for management teams. But I think once you unlearn the things that have been rammed into us from day one, <laughs> it can be a very powerful thing. I mean, the last few years have been difficult, but they've also presented us with an opportunity. We don't have to revert back to what was before the pandemic. This is a, this is a really poignant time for us to think about culture and, and it being fit for purpose for this generation that we're working with now. Yeah, 100%. Let's just move on to resilience. I'm mindful of time, but resilience, um, particularly after the pandemic, as you've referenced, is more important than ever. Now, you're a triathlete. So is that how you manage your mental health? How do you find the time for that? <laughs> yeah, I... I, I <laughs> so, so in all honesty, Sarah, I, yeah, like well-being is, is a big factor for me. I mean, I've experienced burnout twice in my career to date. So um, I'm very conscious about the fact that I need balance in my life and, and physical activity and, and, and mental well-being, it, it plays a key role in that. So you're right, physical activity, whether that's getting on the bike, you know, going for a run. But putting it some, all together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me. I, I, I literally sign up to things that trigger a little fear in me. Okay. Because there is something about lifelong learning that I really believe in and that notion of fear 
feeling that notion of fear, whether it's swimming in the sea as part of a triathlon or jumping into a boxing ring uh, as part of a white collar bout or, or riding to Paris, you know, all of these things that I've done are things that are about learning a bit more about me and, and incrementally just tapping into potential that I never knew I had. So I generally try and set myself challenges like that. Uh, and physical activity is, is great, particularly when you've got a young family as well. <laughs> you need to try and keep, keep energized for them. I hear you. <laughs> And then that's not just that. I think it also gives you space outside of that. And, um, you know, I go out and often to get headspace as much as away from the family unit. <laughs> that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? But um, often it's when my best thinking's done. And I'm often, people laugh at me because I'll bump into friends and dog walkers around our, our locality. And I'll be writing a blog because I, I can run and write at the same time. But it's because I'll be thinking, ah, and I can, within 20 minutes, I'll have not latest bit of writing out and uh, it's so invaluable that space and sometimes I just use it just to just to switch off which is equally as nice and enjoy the environment that's fantastic thank you Tukumbu um let's finish with the one thing that you believe leads to better business outcomes I think the one thing that leads to better business outcomes is creating a culture and a space where people can be their authentic self I think more authenticity leads to greater inclusion, which leads to more brilliance. That's what I believe. Amazing. And if people want to check out the work of Career Ready, where can they find more information? Yeah, um, we've got a website, careerready.org.uk, or we're on the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, we've been doing this work for just over 20 years. And hopefully we'll be here for another 20. I hope so. And uh, I really recommend that uh, if you're a business who might be able to supply an internship, please do take a look. There's lots of different ways to get involved, actually. But making sure that young people get relevant experience at an early age is is so crucial. Um, And I know that Career Ready are always looking for, for people who can help. So do check them out. And that is a perfect wrap to today's Better Business Outcomes podcast. Thanks so much to Gumbo for speaking to me about Career Ready and your own leadership journey. Don't forget to subscribe for free wherever you usually find your podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, please also leave us a review. And I'll see you next time. 